1: Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Betty began having nightmares. The same nightmare, night after night. She dreamed that humanoids dressed in military uniforms ran their car off the road. She and Barney, were escorted to the ship, then subjected to various medical examinations. While Betty was having nightmares, Barney began suffering his own issues. He received an ulcer and his blood pressure spiked. He was restless in both his sleeping and waking hours. For help, the Hills sought out medical assistance from Dr. Benjamin Simon, a well-known neuropsychiatric physician at the time from Boston. After a few sessions, Dr. Simon diagnosed both of the hills with anxiety syndrome. He felt the best treatment would be hypnotic regression, often used in cases of neurosis, in the hopes of detecting the problem both spouses were experiencing. Dr. Simon first had a hypnosis session with Barney, followed by Betty. In the sessions to come, a flood of intricate and disturbing details previously unknown would come to light. I'm Darren Marlar and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome Weirdos, I'm Darren Marlar and this is a Dark Archives episode of Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, the strange and bizarre, crime, conspiracy, mysterious, macabre, unsolved and unexplained. If you're new here, welcome to the show, and if you're already a member of this weirdo family, please take a moment and invite someone else to listen. Recommending Weird Darkness to others helps make it possible for me to keep doing the show. And while you're listening, be sure to check out WeirdDarkness.com where you can find the daily podcast and all social media that I'm on, like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, MeWe, and others, along with the Weird Darkness Weirdos Facebook group. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into this Dark Archives episode of Weird Darkness. An emblematic case for the phenomenon of alien abductions took place on the night of September 19, 1961. Betty and Barney Hill lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Barney was a postal employee, and Betty was a social worker and counselor for the rights of children. They were an unusual couple for the time, as racism was still a problem in the country. Barney was black, of Ethiopian origin. Betty was Caucasian. Still, despite the unusual marriage, they were both well-regarded by friends and neighbors. They were both active members in their church and also members of the National Organization for the Development of Colored Population. Their normal, happy lives, however, were about to be overturned. On September 19th, 1961, Betty and Barney Hill, along with the couple's dog, were driving back to their Portsmouth home from vacationing in Canada. In the dark skies above them, they saw a bright object. At first, Mrs. Hill thought it was a star that she had not noticed before. In order to get a closer look, they stopped the car and grabbed a pair of binoculars. Betty took the first look and thought the object was looking back. She then handed the binoculars to her husband. Upon looking for himself, Barney tells his wife that they've been spotted and the object was coming closer. Suddenly, Barney screamed, They come to catch us! They ran back to their car and noticed what can only be described as a ship less than 30 meters away. It was a large disk, with a row of portholes through which some human figures could be seen. The silhouetted shadows appeared human in form, between four and a half to five and a half feet in height. They had round faces, large cat-like eyes, and a simple horizontal slit for a mouth, no lips. They wore dark-colored clothes that seemed to cover bright, pale, bluish-gray skin. It was almost metallic they were completely hairless and mongoloid in appearance. The creatures approached the hills two by two and directed them onto a path in the forest. In shock and unable to resist despite their struggles, Betty and Barney Hill followed the figures down the path and eventually to the ship. This is the last thing either of them remembered. At first. Approximately two hours later, they heard a car honking on the road from which they were taken. Barney finds himself at the wheel of the car with the odometer showing he has traveled 60 miles further to the south. Neither Betty nor Barney remember what happened in those missing two hours. They arrived home in Portsmouth early morning on September 20th. The clock on the car dashboard indicated 5 a.m. when they pulled into the driveway but had all gone according to plan, they should have arrived at the house by 2.30 a.m. or 3. They knew something had happened, but couldn't explain it. The next day, Betty Hill reported what occurred to Major Paul W. Henderson, who confirmed that the night before there was a UFO spotted by radar in the area. However, he also told the Hills to remain silent about their experience as the military investigated. Somehow, however, the media got wind of the abduction story. Unable to pass up a story so big, two journalists asked to interview the Hills, and Betty and Barney agreed. Piecing together both of their accounts, they discovered almost two full hours missing from their memories. Allowing for breaks or even short stops to take the dog for a walk, the two hours could not be accounted for. Unfortunately, this was only the beginning of what would be a long, terrifying journey for Betty and Barney Hill. Ten days after the incident took place, Betty began having nightmares. The same nightmare, night after night. She dreamed that humanoids dressed in military uniforms ran their car off the road. She and Barney were escorted to the ship then subjected to various medical examinations. While Betty was having nightmares, Barney began suffering his own issues. He received an ulcer, and his blood pressure spiked. He was restless in both his sleeping and waking hours. For help, the Hills sought out medical assistance from Dr. Benjamin Simon, a well-known neuropsychiatric physician at the time from Boston. After a few sessions, Dr. Simon diagnosed both of the hills with anxiety syndrome. He felt the best treatment would be hypnotic regression, often used in cases of neurosis, in the hopes of detecting the problem both spouses were experiencing. Dr. Simon first had a hypnosis session with Barney, followed by Betty. In the sessions to come, a flood of intricate and disturbing details previously unknown would come to light. Under hypnosis, both spouses described the extraterrestrial entities as being bald-headed alien beings, about five-foot tall, with grayish skin, pear-shaped heads, and slanting, cat-like eyes. Barney Hill, for his part, described seeing a figure inside the spacecraft with large wraparound eyes. The figures, according to Barney Hill, were of humanoid form, dressed in shiny black uniforms and black caps with peaks or bills on them, which could be seen when the figures turned their heads. The uniforms were like glossy leather. The figures reminded Barney of the cold precision of German officers. They moved smoothly and efficiently and showed no emotion except for one figure operating a lever who, Mr. Hill claimed, looked over his shoulder and smiled. The leader, as Barney interpreted him to be at the window, was for some reason particularly terrifying. This leader was dressed in black, while the other figures were wearing plain trousers and shirts that looked to be made of a material similar to denim. Barney also describes the ship itself at this point. He says it looks like a regular saucer-shaped UFO but with the distinction that it has fins on the side. Each fin has a red light on the end, and between the two are the portholes or windows through which Barney observes some of the crew through his binoculars. According to an early interview with Walter Webb, Barney says that he can see a crewman through a window who smiles at him and pulls a lever. As he does so, the fins begin to come out of the sides of the ship, like an F-14, Later, Barney recounts under hypnosis that the beings inside the craft had no mouths whatsoever. In every version of the story, as the Hills flee the ship, Betty turns to her husband and asks if he now believes in flying saucers, to which he answers, no. The two were taken into different rooms and subjected to several methods of examination, both physical and mental. They have skin samples taken, as well as pieces of hair and fingernails. During the sessions of hypnosis, Betty related how the humanoids had placed her on some sort of table and were trying to check her nervous system. They wanted to see what are the differences between my nervous system and their nervous system, she told the doctor while under hypnosis. A machine was pulled over with wires, each with a needle at the ends. The needle was touched to points all over her body, sometimes it made a limb jerk or twitch. Both men were highly interested in this test, said Betty. Then came the pregnancy test. A needle was inserted into her navel with a sudden thrust. It was great pain. The examiners were startled and the leader waved his hand in front of my eyes. Immediately the pain was completely gone and I relaxed, related Betty. The beings studied their teeth and one of the examiners strained with Betty's teeth, trying, it appeared, to remove them. Because it didn't succeed, it asked her why her teeth cannot eject while Barney's teeth came out easily. Betty told them that humans often lose their teeth when they grow old and in place of them are put others, which they can remove and clean easily. To the one who Betty was speaking to, it appeared it didn't understand the concept of growing old. As much as Betty struggled to explain the aging process to him, she couldn't make herself clear. The aliens couldn't understand the notions of time or even color. When examining Barney, they took sperm samples with a strange device, and he was told he should not open his eyes. Before leaving the ship, Betty asked the one who seemed to be the leader where they came from. He showed her what appeared to be some kind of map three-dimensional with various-sized dots and lines. It seemed to Betty to be a map of the stars. Betty asked, where are you on the map? To which she was not given an answer. Betty stated that she was given a kind of book as a token of her visit, but this item was later taken back before she and Barney were released. After these events, the Hills were taken back to their car and the last thing they remembered was an orange glow disappearing into the night sky. Dr. Simon begged of Mrs. Hill under hypnosis to draw the map on paper. The draft was given later to a center of research. The hypnosis was a slow process, but after six months, the opinion of the doctor was that the events told by Mr. and Mrs. Hill were not fabricated and truly did occur. As the facts of the Hill's case came to public knowledge, two notable, respectable professionals investigated the story and made their conclusions. One was Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who was at the time Professor of Astronomy at Northwestern University and later to be an Air Force Consultant on Aerial Phenomena. As a consultant to Project Blue Book, Hynek later released the book The UFO Experience, in which he discussed the Hill's case. In the book, He wrote, "...under repeated hypnosis they independently revealed what had supposedly happened." Dr. Hynek eventually would create his own Center for UFO Studies. The other professional was Stanton T. Friedman, a nuclear physicist and the nation's only space scientist devoted full-time to researching the UFO phenomenon. He spent many long hours with the Hills trying to make sense of the mystery. He analyzed all of the investigations made on the two and also concluded that their story relays real events and he considered it downright impossible for someone to make up the stories they told. Professor Friedman issued this statement, by no stretch of the imagination could anyone who knows them conclude that they were nuts. Friedman considered that, firstly, the two were well respected by those who knew them or worked with them, They had success professionally, and they didn't have any motive to make up such a story, which would harm their reputations and credibility. Additionally, after all that happened, the two carried on their lives as normally as possible, participating in the same activities as before, in so much as they were able. Also, the physicist argued his position by pointing to the map drawn by Betty under hypnosis in 1964. At that time, any astronomer who studied the map couldn't understand it, which is where the credibility of the story came into question. But approximately eight years after these events, when more powerful telescopes came into use and new stars could be seen, several scientists validated the map as accurate. In 1963, no astronaut on the planet knew the position of the respective stars, yet these stars were confirmed to exist in 1969. How could Betty create an accurate and precise map with stars that had not yet been discovered and verified? Intrigued with the mystery of the star map, an Ohio school teacher and amateur astronomer Marjorie Fish became involved in the case in 1969. Wondering if the stars and planets on the map would match any known celestial objects Fish got an interview with Betty Hill in the summer of 1969. After a lengthy discussion with Betty, Fish released the following statement. On August 4, 1969, Betty Hill discussed the star map with me. Betty explained that she drew the map in 1964 under post-hypnotic suggestion. It was to be drawn only if she could remember it accurately and she was not to pay attention to what she was drawing, which puts it in the realm of automatic drawing. This is a way of getting at repressed or forgotten material and can result in unusual accuracy. She made two erasures showing her conscious mind took control part of the time. Betty described the map as three-dimensional, like looking through a window. The stars were tinted and glowed the map material was flat and thin, not a model, and there were no noticeable lenticular lines like one of the three-dimensional processes. It sounds very much like a reflective hologram. Betty did not shift her position while viewing it, so we cannot tell if it would give the same three-dimensional view from all positions or if it would be completely three-dimensional. Betty estimated the map was approximately three feet wide and two feet high, with the pattern covering most of the map. She was standing about three feet away from it. She said there were many other stars on the map, but she only, apparently, was able to specifically recall the prominent ones connected by lines and a small distinctive triangle off to the left. She said she was told that the heavy lines marked regular trade routes, and the broken lines recorded various space expeditions. There was no concentration of stars to indicate the Milky Way or galactic plane, suggesting that if it represented reality, it probably only contained local stars. There were no grid lines. Years later, researcher Marjorie Fish was able to find a unique matching set of nearby stars which fit the map perfectly. Scientists from the State University of Ohio used a computer to give the accurate positions in relation to the stars Zeta Reticuli 1 and Zeta Reticuli 2, 220 trillion miles, 37 light years from Earth, looking toward our Sun. The computer generated the exact map drawn by Betty Hill. The existence of these two stars, Zeta Reticuli 1 and Zeta Reticuli 2, were not confirmed by astronomers until 1969, eight years after the Hill's abduction experience and five years after Betty drew the star map under hypnosis. Astronomers also confirmed that in 1961, neither of these stars would be visible even with the most powerful telescopes of the day, and not visible at all further north in the city of Ciudad de Mexico. Years later, Barney died at the young age of 46 due to a cerebral hemorrhage, while Betty lived until 2004, living a long life, fully embraced and surrounded by UFO fans and culture. Betty had eventually become one of the most known voices in the research of alien life. The Betty and Barney Hill Collection at the University of New Hampshire includes the dress which Betty wore the night of the kidnapping, which is torn in two places. The collection also includes diaries, the correspondence of the family, newspapers from the time, photos, and even a statue of one of the humanoids they met during their abduction which Betty and Barney called Junior. Both Betty and Barney Hill are now buried in the back of Greenwood Cemetery off North Road in Kingston, New Hampshire. Chiseled into their gravestones are the words, The Interrupted Journey. The story of Betty and Barney Hill has since become the best documented and most famous case of alien abduction in the history of ufology. And even today, no one has been able to bring forth any proof or evidence to contradict the sincerity or mental health of either Betty or Barney, and likely never will. We still have more of this Dark Archives episode of Weird Darkness on the way! You've bolted the doors, locked the windows, turned off the lights, and now all you need before listening to Weird Darkness is a mug of Weird Dark Roast Coffee to keep those ghostly chills at bay. Weird Dark Roast Coffee has deep notes of cocoa, caramel, and a touch of sinister sweetness. This is an exclusive coffee that I selected specifically for you, my weirdo family. Weird Dark Roast is not available in stores, coffee houses, mad scientist labs, or even the dark web, but you can find it at WeirdDarkness.com. Use the promo code WEIRD and you won't even have to pay for delivery on your first order. Weird Dark Roast Coffee, find the link and grab a bag now for yourself at WeirdDarkness.com.
0: A woo a hand clapper, a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: How would you like to help people who struggle with depression and help spread the word about your favorite podcast at the same time? That's exactly what you're doing every time you shop in the Weird Darkness store. Whether it's a t-shirt, a coffee mug, tote bag, phone case, notebook, pillow, wall hanging, or anything else, no matter what you buy, 100% of the profits I receive from the Weird Darkness store are donated to organizations that help people who struggle with depression. And if you don't like what you see on the first page, you can search for something you do like in the search bar. It all still helps the cause. Get to shopping for all the weirdos on your list or for your own weirdo self by clicking on store at WeirdDarkness.com. Last year, I went up to my room. We have only a two-story house and my room is in the attic. And I fell asleep pretty quickly. The day had been ordinary. And I had no reason to be unsettled by bedtime. But strangely, I woke around 3 a.m. to the sound of what I thought was my mom coming up the stairs. I thought, now, why would she be coming up here at this time? So I rolled over and looked. The minute I did, the noise stopped. There was no shadow indicating that someone was there. So I rolled back over brushing it off. I closed my eyes again and the noise started back up. This time it sounded like it had made it into my room. Once again, I looked. There was nothing. By this time, I was starting to freak out, so I grabbed my Bible and held it against my chest, praying that God would protect me. The sound of someone walking across my room was very terrifying, and I couldn't help but throw the covers over my head. The moment I did, I heard a raspy, long, drawn-out breath. I don't know how to describe it, but it sounded like someone with barely a voice screaming. I shot up and saw a dark figure hovered at the foot of my bed. I yelled, in the name of Jesus Christ, I demand you to leave me! Just after, the figure vanished. It was just gone. I couldn't sleep the rest of that night, and I spent the rest of the night praying. When I was born in my grandmother's bed, I was welcomed to the world by a member of the family who has stayed in my memory to this day. Under the bed, as I came into the world and took my first breath, was an untidy but very faithful soul who gave only love. His name was Spot. We were together from that moment on, a very special relationship and one I still hold dear, As a baby, I was often put on the back of my grandmother's lovable pet dog, Spot, by my aunts to give me a ride like a tiny jockey on a horse. This amused my aunts a lot, and I can just remember this myself. I grew up with the dog being an important part of the family, and at about the age of eight, I would regularly play with my younger cousins and with Spot at my grandmother's house. We often played in the garden together and I got used to raising the sash of the bay window to climb into the house rather than disturb Granny. She seemed to always be cooking or making beds and cleaning. One of my very special memories was the smell of the copper boiler washtub on Fridays, full of washing, the hot soapy steam filling the kitchen like perfume as she poked away with the wooden tongs. She often made toffee apples, too the sticky red toffee sweet against the sharp taste of the apple within. Wonderful days before the world changed to adulthood. Spot was a great favorite with us kids. All children love a dog as a friend and playmate, and Spot could perform a few neat tricks which we kids had taught him ourselves. The dog was getting old, however, by the time I was eight, so we were careful not to get him to do more than he could. And anyway, he now spent a lot of time just curled up in his basket, watching us as we played and rolling on his back for a tummy tickle when we spoke to him. He was a lovely pet. One afternoon, we were in the garden digging out tunnels for our toy soldiers to explore and to hide our little tin cars in at the bottom of Grandma's garden. Like all kids, the need to keep playing to the very last moment was much more important than doing the essential things. Suddenly my cousin started jumping up and down and shouting, I need to pee! I need to pee! Now, now, now! Let me indoors! I rushed to the window and raised the sash. I climbed into the house and jumped down onto the sofa below the bay window, patting Spot on the head as I did so, and he jumped up and licked my hand as usual. Running to the front door to let young Michael in, I suddenly felt a deep chill go down my spine as I turned the small knob on the lock. I felt the hair slowly rise on the back of my neck as I suddenly remembered Spot had died the previous Sunday and was now safely buried in the garden. But I swear to this day that I patted that dog on the head and he licked my hand in return as I went to the door. I still have photos of Spot somewhere around. I inherited them when my parents died. There's even one picture of me actually riding on his back, supported by my youngest Anne, Maureen. Spot was a rather scruffy, white, rough-haired mongrel dog with a black patch on his body and a lovely pet and a very special friend who will be forever with me in my memories of childhood." This story is completely true from my days growing up near Chislehurst, Kent. I want to dedicate it to my Uncle Ken, a great friend and a lot of fun, and who I was named after. My brother and my daughter decided to have a weekend away with me in a village where we stayed in a 200-year-old inn. While there, we saw a notice board with a ghost walk advertised on it. We thought it would be a bit of fun and agreed to go on it. When we turned up at the allotted time at the meeting place, which was in front of the old, disused graveyard, we were surprised that no one else was there. I asked a young girl passing by if she knew anything about it, She told us it was only on a Friday night that the event took place, and this was Saturday evening. Disappointed that we had missed it, we decided to go and have a couple of drinks for some courage, and then we set out to have our own ghost walk. Feeling brave, probably because of the alcohol, we entered the graveyard. It felt peaceful and not at all scary. My brother started taking photographs they looked a bit eerie, but we didn't feel too worried. My brother then wandered off on his own, taking snaps as he went. We could see the flash on his camera going off across the graves, but couldn't see him because the headstones were very high, some were over eight feet tall. Suddenly, he came running back to where we were standing and showed me the display screen on his camera. We could all see several bright orbs, One of them was enormous. No word of a lie. Although we were shocked, none of us really felt afraid. Since that night, we have joined a paranormal investigation team and have been back there a few times. I have some amazing photos that we've taken and would love to upload them for others to see and maybe comment on. I have dealt with things that go bump in the night most of my life, making me always wonder if I was a bit of a strange child, but I never thought I would end up living day to day with an entity. It can be just as spooky and unnerving as all the movies you've seen, but it can also be stressful. You just have to keep laughing and get through it. Easy to say, now, years later. We moved into a huge house, not far from San Francisco, just before Christmas 1986. I lived there alone with three children while their father commuted, coming home on the weekends. The first night was filled with the new house exploration, the usual moving and settling in activities, keeping me heavily occupied both day and night. I knew there was a hidden cubbyhole in the kitchen cupboards, only two feet tall, two feet deep, one foot wide, and about six feet off the ground. What puzzled us so greatly was the latch to prevent access to the hidden area was actually inside the cupboard door, meaning you had to be inside the cupboard to latch the door. I was going back and forth through the house 3,000 square feet of house built in a lovely old French door style with large, wandering rooms and hallways, walk-in closets, surprise turns, and windows that led to nowhere. The children were asleep, and I was sorting room to room. Each time I passed the cupboard, the door was open. I would close it, continue on my way, only to pass by later and again to find it open. I tried ever so hard to ignore the creepy feeling crawling up both arms to my neck. It kept occurring to me that I knew absolutely no one within a hundred miles. I was alone with my three small children. Christmas was just around the corner, so I took the time when the children were asleep to wrap presents. I kept the wrapping papers in a very heavy, large old trunk opening at the top. When the trunk was opened, the top rested backwards heavily against the metal retaining straps. The balance of the lid was so that if the trunk had been empty, it would almost be in danger of tipping over backwards. I was in the process of removing rolls of paper from the trunk and had just withdrawn my hand when the lid came crashing closed and the animals ran from the room. It took my breath away and all remaining logical thoughts from my brain. I must have sat for several minutes, stunned, yearning for a logical explanation. The animals didn't return for quite some time. Further into the night, I was setting up the dining room table for meals, placing quilted placemats down for our family. One of the dog's two-inch toy balls came rolling towards me ever so slowly, ever so steadily, making the softest whispering sound as it gently rolled on the highly polished wooden floor. Not a sound could be heard except for the ball's whisper. When the ball stopped, the house was filled with silence, eerie, uncomfortable silence. The parrot was silent watching the ball. The dogs were motionless, looking at me at the ball with puzzled expressions. I tried to convince myself this was normal. There was some explanation. I picked it up, placing it on the placemat in front of me. I stood there for the longest time and watched it. Nothing. No sound, no movement. It had to have been moved by an animal and I did not notice. Okay. Heartbeat back to normal. Things to do. Just as I started to turn away, the ball leaped into the air about a half inch, rolled off the table and back onto the floor. I watched it in shocked silence as it made its way to the dining room wall where it stopped and rested. Silent. Finished. I hadn't heard of the black-eyed kids until recently. I also came across reports of black-eyed adults. This happened in 1976 when I was 18 years old. Back then I was confident, fun-loving, and didn't scare easily. My friend and I decided on a week's holiday in London. We had saved for months and had intended on going to a show, nightclubs, and buying fashionable clothes. We were on our way to do the latter when this happened. We excitedly clambered onto the tube, looking forward to hitting the fashionable boutiques, took our seats chattering about shoes, dresses, etc. I happened to look up and on the next section of seats, facing me, was a thin man with a long face. He had black hair, pale, waxy skin, and small black eyes. He sat impassively, staring at me with no expression whatsoever. I felt the thud of panic which grew into complete terror and regardless of the amount of people on that tube, I had the feeling of being completely alone and in terrible danger. I tried telling my friend, who was oblivious, and she kept saying, where, where, I don't see him. What, you can't see him? You can't bloody miss him! I wanted to scream. But for some odd reason, I felt I had to keep quiet and avoid his gaze. I don't know how I managed that short journey. I dragged my friend off the tube and made a rush to the lift in a blind panic. I would be safe when out of the underground and in the daylight. Huddled in the busy lift, praying the doors would close, I almost collapsed in terror when there he was, In the lift, no emotion, black eyes watching me. I turned and whimpered to my friend that he was standing in the corner. She said there was nobody with that description there. I kept my head bowed. There was an air of menace and nobody was aware of it. I pushed my way out when the lift doors opened, then turned to check where he was. He didn't come out of the lift there was only the one floor. He had vanished. What puzzles me is why didn't my friend see him? Why was she so oblivious to my distress? She knew I wasn't an irrational person. When I tried to explain, she said she couldn't remember me speaking. It was as though I was in a bubble with that man and anyone outside of it was unaware of the great threat and danger. It was awful. Who was he? We've got more of this Dark Archives episode of Weird Darkness still to come. Our next Weirdo Watch Party is Saturday, August 14th, and it's going to be doubly weird as we'll be watching the Weirdness Really Bad movie, hosted by Dave Binkley, as he'll be bringing us 1965's The Yesterday Machine, starring a whole bunch of actors you've never heard of. It's about a Nazi scientist who invents a time machine which enables him to go back and alter the events of World War II. Now, seeing as the Nazis lost World War II, I'm thinking we'll be rooting for the people trying to stop him. Or maybe he's a good hearted Nazi who has seen the error of his ways and wants to go back and tell Hitler that's all a really bad idea. Yeah, okay, never mind, you know what, that idea sounds boring. Let's hope it's the crazy Nazi scientist storyline. Our host Dave Binkley has actually been nominated for the 2021 Horror Host Hall of Fame, so you know we're in for a good time. Join us 9 p.m. Central Time on Saturday, August 14th as we watch the horrible movie Laugh At and With the Horror Host and web chat our own jokes during the flick. Again, it's Saturday, August 14th, 7 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, 10 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. in Hawaii, 3 a.m. in the UK on the Monster Channel page at WeirdDarkness.com. Step into the extraordinary with Auditory Anthology, a podcast series where science fiction short stories come alive. Narrated by me, your voice of weird darkness, and curated by Keith Conrad, each episode is a journey into imagination. Explore cosmic wonders and futuristic tales, and dive into a universe of stories where the impossible is possible! Auditory Anthology, available at AuditoryAnthology.com and on Apple, Spotify or your podcast player of choice! Subscribe to the Weird Darkness newsletter and you could be my next winner in my monthly random drawing! Each month, one person wins a Weird Darkness prize pack, including an extra-large Weird Darkness poster, a coffee mug, two magnets and two stickers. If you want to be next month's winner, be sure to sign up for the free email newsletter at WeirdDarkness.com. Walking into an invisible barrier? You may never have heard of such a thing, but it is not a modern phenomenon. Peculiar encounters with invisible barriers can be traced to biblical times. Some of the curious reports come from witnesses who have caught glimpses from what can be described as parallel realities. If parallel worlds do exist, and most scientists suggest they do, then it's possible that invisible worlds coexisting next to our own reality may be responsible for the emergence of occasional barriers. That are invisible to our naked eye. In more modern times, it has also been suggested that mysterious rays and energy fields are causing the appearance no pun intended of invisible barriers. Such energy fields could explain why a perfect engine suddenly dies in the middle of the road. It could also explain why animals and humans are unable to pass beyond a point in the road. In the Bible, Numbers chapter 22, verses 21-39, through 39, there was a story describing how Balaam, a sorcerer, was summoned by King Balak of the Moabites to curse the Israelites as Moses was leading them toward Canaan. Balaam's donkey refused on three occasions to follow the path, and nothing could force it to walk any further. The biblical explanation is that the donkey saw an angel standing in the way and tried to avoid it. Suddenly, the donkey starts to talk and complains about Balaam's treatment. At this point, Balaam is allowed to see the angel of the Lord standing in its path. The angel tells Balaam that the donkey is the only reason the angel did not kill Balaam. It is an interesting account showing there could be entities in our material world that are not always visible to everyone at the same time. Putting the biblical story aside, it should be noted that this strange encounter was just one of many similar that have been recorded throughout history. There are many reports of encounters with time portals and people who have caught glimpses from the past. Such incidents have happened worldwide for as long as anyone can remember brief sightings of phantom ancient armies are also not unusual, especially not in the United Kingdom and France where several cases have been reported. One curious incident involving a sighting of a long-gone vanished army and encounter with an invisible barrier took place in 1960 on a road near Otterburn, Northumberland. This place is of great historical importance, and many battles have been fought in the area. One of them was the Battle of Flodden that occurred in September of 1513. The battle has gone into the history books as the largest encounter between England and Scotland. There are several witnesses who say they have seen a phantom army near the site. One of them was taxi driver Dorothy Strong, who reported her car came to a total stop when the phantom army appeared. Suddenly, the engine died the ferrimeter went haywire and the taxi felt as if it was being forced against an invisible wall. The soldiers seemed to close in on us then fade into thin air," she reported. According to other people, it's not unusual that one can encounter an invisible barrier around that location. A similar incident took place in Saxon, Germany. In 1930, as many as 40 cars stalled simultaneously on one road none of them were able to restart again for an hour. What could have caused such engine disturbance? There were discussions that secret rays were responsible for these mysterious accidents, but who or what were producing these rays has never been determined. Those who believe in the existence of unseen beings inhabiting our world will find that there are many accounts of invisible barriers associated with fairies. According to an ancient tradition of the Stray Sod, there is a patch of soil on which fairies have placed a spell. Anyone who steps on this enchanted ground has great difficulty finding his way off it. I was up in the mountains with my dad and my dog for a long weekend. We rented a tiny little scenic cabin made almost entirely of glass. The door didn't even lock. Right next to the house, basically the backyard, was a small river. On the other side was a cement dam. It flowed under the small road that was nearby. It was also in a ravine, where there were giant mountains all around, and we were at the bottom. We hung out until nighttime, then went to sleep. Around one in the morning, my dog woke me up because he needed to go outside. It was really cold, so I got all bundled up and put his leash on. I also grabbed a flashlight, because there were absolutely no light sources outside. I went out past the deck into the grass right next to the river and turned my light on. I moved my light all along the edge of the mountain. Suddenly, I saw something on the dam on the other side of the river, and I did a double take. A man was standing on the dam. I guess he was a man. He didn't have a face and was dressed all in black. He wasn't far away at all. We stared at each other for a while. He didn't react at all to my shining the light directly into his eyes, or where his eyes would have been at least. After a minute I did the stupidest, most horror movie cliché thing ever. I called out, hello? I thought he might have been ice fishing or walking his dog, but when he didn't move or respond I realized he wasn't doing either of those things. I booked it back inside, I jammed a chair under the door handle, but I knew there wasn't much I could really do since the whole house was made of glass. I woke up my dad. He's legally blind and so it took him forever to get his glasses. Finally, he looked outside. He said he saw the man. I thought I might have been going totally nuts, but he didn't know what to do either. and He went back to bed. I didn't know what to do either and I thought about calling the police, but what would the police do? The man wasn't technically doing anything wrong. He was not on our property or hurting anyone yet at least, so I couldn't call them. I just watched out the window. He stared straight at me, for hours. He actually moved and turned toward my window. After about two hours, he walked back up the hill and down the road. I was so relieved. I thought he was gone. I went to get a glass of water and on the way past the window, there he was, right back on the dam. He stayed there for another hour or so. Then came the part that was truly supernatural. He walked a few feet towards a tree, but never went past it. Instead, one leg and one arm swung forward, then smoothly slid back behind the tree. Over and over again. It looked like his pants and jacket had been stuck to the tree and were reacting to strong bursts of wind. But there was no wind to speak of. After that, he disappeared around 5 in the morning. I still don't know what happened or what that was. I thought for a while about it being a slender man, but it doesn't exactly fit the bill. It wasn't tall and skinny enough, There was definitely a supernatural aspect to it, though. In 1921, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was the highest-paid actor in the world. He had recently signed a deal with Paramount Pictures for a whopping $1 million dollars or about $13 million today, an unheard-of sum at the time. Posters for his movies billed the 266-pound comedian as worth his weight in laughs. But before the year was out, he was accused of a crime so monstrous that he would never appear on screen again. The conflicting accounts, tabloid exaggerations, and general furor surrounding the crime that ended Arbuckle's acting career make it difficult to determine what exactly happened that fateful day. Even today, publications re-examining the scandal often come to completely different conclusions regarding Arbuckle's guilt or innocence. Virtually, the only indisputable facts seem to be that on September 5, 1921, there was a party at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco, where alcohol was in abundance despite prohibition laws and that both Arbuckle, then age 33, and a woman named Virginia Rapp were in attendance. Then at some point during the revelry, Arbuckle and Rapp were briefly in the same hotel room together. But when Arbuckle left the room, Rapp remained lying on the bed writhing in pain. Four days later, she was dead of a ruptured bladder. What fueled the scandal at the time, and what has remained a mystery ever since, is just what role, if any, Arbuckle played in Rapp's death. Another partygoer soon accused him of raping and killing her, and he was tried three different times for those crimes. But the first two trials ended with hung juries, and the third ended with an acquittal. Nevertheless, the controversy surrounding his possible guilt, and the case as a whole, continues on. Virginia Rapp was a 26-year-old aspiring actress and model, originally from Chicago, who had a reputation as something of a party girl. During the party in question, witnesses recalled that an intoxicated Rapp complained she could not breathe and then started to tear off her clothes and this was not the first instance of Virginia Rapp stripping while intoxicated. One newspaper even dubbed her an amateur call girl who used to get drunk at parties and start to tear her clothes off. Rapp's detractors used this as evidence of her wild ways, while her defenders point out that she had a bladder condition that was exacerbated by alcohol and used to cause her such discomfort that she would drunkenly take off her clothes in an attempt to alleviate her condition. And as for the events of September 5, 1921, the accounts of the night vary wildly. According to party guest Maud Delmont, after a few drinks, Arbuckle strong-armed Virginia Rapp into his room with the sinister utterance, I've waited for you five years and now I've got you. After 30 minutes or so, Delmont became concerned upon hearing screams from behind the closed door of Arbuckle's room and started knocking. Arbuckle answered the door wearing his foolish screen smile and Rapp was on the bed, naked and moaning in pain. Delmont claims that Rapp managed to gasp Arbuckle did it before she was taken away into a different hotel room. Arbuckle, however, testified that he had gone into his bathroom and found Rapp already there on the floor, vomiting. After helping her onto the bed, he and several other guests summoned the hotel doctor, who determined that Rapp was just heavily intoxicated and took her into another hotel room to sleep it off. Whatever happened that night, Virginia Rapp's condition had still not improved three days afterward. It was then that she was taken to a hospital where doctors originally thought she had alcohol poisoning from the bootleg liquor. But as it turned out, she had peritonitis resulting from a ruptured bladder likely caused by her pre-existing condition. The ruptured bladder and peritonitis are what killed her the next day, September 9, 1921. But at the hospital, Delmont told police that Rapp had been raped by Arbuckle at the party, and on September 11, 1921, the comedian was arrested. Newspapers across the country went wild. Some claimed that the overweight Arbuckle had damaged Rapp's liver by crushing her while trying to have sex with her, while others offered up increasingly outrageous stories, consisting of various depravities supposedly carried out by the actor both Arbuckle and Rapp's names were dragged through the mud in the competition to print the most salacious rumors. Publishing magnate William Randolph Hearst gleefully noted that the scandal had sold more papers than the sinking of the Lusitania. By the time Arbuckle went to trial for manslaughter, his public reputation was already ruined. Delmont was never actually called to the stand because prosecutors knew her testimony would never hold up in court due to her ever-changing stories. Nicknamed Madam Black, Delmont already had a reputation for procuring girls for Hollywood parties, using those girls to instigate scandalous acts and then blackmailing celebrities anxious to keep those acts quiet. It also didn't help Delmont's credibility that she had sent telegrams to attorneys saying, quote, "...we have Roscoe Arbuckle in a hole here, chance to make some money out of him." Unquote. Meanwhile, although Arbuckle's lawyers showed that the autopsy had concluded that there were no marks of violence on the body, no signs that the girl had been attacked in any way, and various witnesses corroborated the actor's version of events, it took three trials before Arbuckle was acquitted after the first ended with hung juries. But by this time, the scandal had so devastated Arbuckle's career that the jury who acquitted him felt obliged to read an apologetic statement that concluded with, quote, "...we wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame." But it was already too late. Hollywood's highest-paid star was now Box Office Poison. His movies were pulled from cinemas, and he never worked on screen again. Arbuckle was able to stay in film by doing some directing, but even behind the camera, his career had no chance of finding its footing. He died of a heart attack in 1933 at the age of 46, having never fully restored his reputation. the morning of January 31, 1921, the Carol A. Deering, a beautiful, huge, five-masted schooner, was found hard aground on Hatteras Diamond Shoals, North Carolina. The crew was nowhere to be found. Abandoned and deserted, with all of its eleven crewmen missing, the circumstances are as strange as those of the Mary Celeste and her demise remains as one of the greatest unsolved maritime mysteries of all time. Her sails were up and the galley showed evidence that a meal was about to be prepared. The crew's personal effects were gone, along with the ship's navigational equipment, logbooks, and life rafts. Also mysteriously missing were the eleven crew members of the vessel. Christened Carol A. Deering, The schooner was built in 1919 by the G.G. Deering Company, said to be the oldest active shipbuilder in the country at the time. The Deering was also the last of nearly 100 boats built by the G.G. Deering Company. Described as being a tremendous ship, measuring 255 feet long and 45 feet across, the Deering was designed for cargo service only the best stock was used in constructing this three-deck vessel. Her features included an oak ceiling and planking of hard pine. A handsome combination of mahogany, empress and ash woods were used to finish the interior. Oregon masts measuring 108 feet long with top masts measuring 46 feet long flanked the vessel. Other luxurious features included a bathroom, with open plumbing and cabins fully lit by electricity and heated by steam. Indeed, she was a wooden boat enthusiast's dream. Mrs. Carol Deering stood at the bow of the ship and christened it using a large bouquet of roses which she scattered as the vessel made its descent down the ways. The Carol A. Deering schooner was being prepared to sail from Boston to Buenos Aires then on to Rio de Janeiro. In charge of the voyage would be part owner and Captain William M. Merritt, who chose his son, S. E. Merritt, as his first mate. Nine other Scandinavian men were hired as crew. On August 20, 1920, they set sail for Boston. Later that same month, after sailing from Boston, Captain Merritt became ill and the vessel was diverted to port in Lewes, Delaware. After determining that the captain was too ill to continue the voyage, he was left in Luz. His son, E. E. Merritt, also disembarked the ship to care for his father. Left without a captain and first mate, the Deering Company hastily hired replacements for the positions. Captain Willis T. Warmel, a veteran retired shipmaster and experienced navigator, was chosen as the new captain. He hired Charles B. Malellan as his first mate. On September 8, 1920, the Deering finally got underway for Rio de Janeiro with a cargo of coal. The vessel arrived without incident, and the crew was given time off. In the meantime, Captain Warmel met with an old friend, also a captain. Warmel confided in him that he does not like his crew, and the behavior of his first mate concerns him. They agree that the ship's engineer, Bates, can be trusted. On their return trip, from Rio de Janeiro, a series of events occurred, ultimately ending with the Carol A. Deering running aground. Here is the timeline of events in the final voyage. January 9, 1921 – The vessel sets sail for Portland, Maine. January 25 – Another ship, the SS Hewitt, with a crew of 42, disappears from the same area while sailing on a similar course as the Deering she was last heard from on this date. January 29th, Carol A. Deering reported having passed Cape Lookout lightship, sailing at five miles per hour. A man on board got the attention of the passing ship and said the vessel had lost both anchors and asked if he could report it to its owners. The crewman did not act or look like an officer. Shortly after, a passing steamer was asked to stop by the lightship to take the message for the schooner. It is a maritime law to respond to the whistles of the lightship. However, the steamer, whose ship name could not be seen, did not stop and continued sailing on. January 31, 1921. The Carol A. Deering is spotted with all sails set, riding a sandbar at Diamond Shoals. According to the official report, she was driven high up on the shoal in a boiled bed of breakers with all sails set, as if abandoned in a hurry. All personal effects belonging to the crew were gone, along with all of the ship's navigational instruments and the lifeboats. Rescue ships were unable to board the ship due to bad weather, and it was not until February 4th that the ship was boarded. The Coast Guard attempted to salvage the vessel, but was unsuccessful. The Carol A. Deering was eventually scuttled with dynamite on March 4th. Despite an extensive investigation by the U.S. government that included the Commerce, Treasury, Justice, Navy, and State Departments, no explanation could be found for the crew's disappearance. There were a number of theories considered by the U.S. government during their investigation that included piracy, mutiny, a hurricane, a Russian or communist piracy, rum runners, or an unexplained paranormal event. The investigation finally wound down and came to an end in 1922, with no official explanation ever being found. This Dark Archives episode of Weird Darkness continues in just a moment. When I was younger, I tended to put all of myself into what I enjoyed doing, but I began feeling the consequences of living like that when I hit my 40s. Fortunately, my bad back and aching knee they're not an issue now because I use CBD oils. I've been a proponent for CBD oil for years but now I'm able to not only introduce it to you but also give you a discount on it. My friends at Extract Labs have set it up for you to get anything and everything on their website for 15% off. Just use the promo code WEIRD15 at checkout. Studies have shown that CBD can help with depression in many cases as well. It certainly has for me. I've also started using CBG oil as well, and I take the capsules that combine both CBD and CBG, so I'm covered with one gel capsule. But there are numerous ways to use CBD oils. Bath bombs, body rubs, muscle creams, face creams, candy bars, powders for cooking, and more. They even have products specifically to help your pets. Plus, all of their products come THC-free, so you don't have to worry about psychoactive properties like other hemp-related products. If you're a CBD user already, or if it's something you just want to try, visit WeirdDarkness.com slash CBD and take a look at all the products available. That's WeirdDarkness.com slash CBD, and remember, use the promo code WEIRD15, all one word, at checkout and you can save 15% on your entire purchase. That's WeirdDarkness.com slash CBD and then use the promo code WEIRD15 at checkout. If you like Weird Darkness and you want to hear even more, check out the free audiobooks that I've narrated at WeirdDarkness.com. I've got free audiobooks there by Stephen King, H.P. Lovecraft, Charles Dickens, Robert Heinlein, and more. You can listen to all the free audiobooks I've narrated on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. Driving along the isolated road that runs down the scenic Hook Peninsula in Ireland's ancient east, it is easy to spot the mansion that has earned itself the reputation as the most haunted house in Ireland. If ever a building fit the stereotype of a home haunted by its bloody and tragic past, this was it. Set against the backdrop of a rugged and wind-swept coastal setting, Loftus Hall, looms over the surrounding landscape. Its historic walls have seen invasion, capture, plague, famine, and numerous personal tragedies, many of which live on as ghostly legends still told today. The recorded history of Loftus Hall and the land upon which it sits stretches back some 800 years, but locals say the significance of the site goes back thousands of years and was once sacred to the Druids, the high-ranking professional and religious class in ancient Celtic cultures. The story of Loftus Hall begins around 1170 AD, when Raymond Redmond Fitzgerald, nicknamed Le Grosse or The Fat, landed at Baganbun Head in the Hook Peninsula in what is now the country of Wexford in Ireland. It's a famous site in Irish history known as the place where Ireland was lost and won. Raymond was among the first of a small band of Norman knights who played an active role in helping enforce normal rule over Ireland. He acquired land in the area, upon which he built a castle known as Houseland Castle. Over the years it fell into disrepair, and in 1350 descendants of Raymond Le Gros built a new castle called the Hall of Redmond Hall. The Hall remained with the Redmond family until the mid 1600s, when the Irish Confederate Wars saw the castle repeatedly attacked and eventually seized as part of the Cromwellian confiscations. In one remarkable display of defense on the 20th of July 1642, Alexander Redmond, who was 68 at the time, managed to protect the Hall from around 90 English invaders with just the help of his two sons, some tenants, two soldiers and a tailor. They staved off several more attacks after which Alexander Redmond received favorable terms from Cromwell. Upon his death around 1651, Redmond's family were evicted from the hall and their home put up for auction. In 1666, Henry Loftus, originally from Yorkshire, England, acquired the confiscated lands, and the mansion was renamed Loftus Hall. Over the decades and centuries that followed, the Loftus family rose in the peerage, producing barons, viscounts, earls, and marquesses, and as they climbed the ladder of aristocracy, the illustrious family hoped they could entice Queen Victoria to visit. With that goal in mind, John Henry Loftus, the fourth Marquess of Ely, embarked on an enormous renovation of the hall between 1870 and 1879. To make it grander than ever before. Although it is widely reported that Loftus Hall was completely demolished and rebuilt, there is evidence that much of the former hall was utilized and worked into the mansion that can be seen today. No expense was spared in the renovation of Loftus Hall. Erected as a three-story mansion with a balustraded parapet, the hall boasts an ornate mosaic floor and a spectacular grand staircase, hand-carved by Italian craftsmen. The house certainly was fit for a queen. But Queen Victoria never arrived, causing deep disappointment to the Loftus family. While its rich and colorful past is enough to bring history's buffs flocking, it is the legends, the unexplained mysteries, and the tales of ghostly apparitions that have made Loftus Hall one of the most visited mansions in the whole of Ireland. The legends stem from the real life and death of Anne Tottenham. In the mid-1600s, Charles Tottenham married the Honorable Anne Loftus, daughter of the first Viscount Loftus, and they had six children, four boys and two girls, Elizabeth and Anne. But his wife became ill and died while the girls were still young. Two years later, Tottenham married his cousin, Jane Cliff. And they lived together along with Anne in Loftus Hall. One night, amid a powerful storm, a ship arrived at the Hook Peninsula and a young man made his way to Loftus Hall, asking if he could take shelter there. It was not uncommon for strangers to come knocking, as the rough waters around the South Wexford coast often resulted in ships being grounded on the shore or shattered by rocks. The man was invited in and ended up residing at the house for several weeks. During this time, Anne, now a young woman, fell in love with the stranger and spent countless hours socializing with him in the tapestry room. According to local legends, one evening Anne was playing cards with the stranger, as well as other guests, when she leaned down under the table to collect a card she had dropped and noticed that the stranger had cloven hoofs she screamed loudly, causing the stranger to expose himself as the devil. He transformed into a ball of fire and shot up through the roof, leaving Anne in a state of trauma from which she never recovered. Anne's mental state deteriorated rapidly, and her family, embarrassed by her behavior, confined her to a room in the house where she remained until her death in around 1775. It is said that from this time onwards, Loftus Hall became plagued by severe poltergeist activity, the troubled Anne never able to rest in peace. Several Protestant clergymen were summoned by the family to put a stop to it, but none could rid the house of its evil forces. In their desperation, the family, themselves Protestant, called upon a Catholic priest who was a tenant on their estate, Father Thomas Broders, who was successful in cleansing the House of Negative Forces. It is popularly reported that his gravestone contains the inscription, Here lies the body of Thomas Broders who did good and prayed for all and who banished the devil from Loftus Hall, though there is no evidence that this inscription ever existed. It is fair to say that many of the details of this account are likely to be little more than fictional folk tales. Nevertheless, reports going back over a century say that Anne was indeed confined to a room in Loftus Hall until her death. So, what really happened to her? It is most likely that the account of the cloven hoof and the devil shooting through the roof was made up by the Loftus family to deter beggars and other strangers from paying a visit to the hall. After all, they were desperately hoping to entice Queen Victoria for a visit, so the last thing they needed was undesirables getting in the way. This then raises the question as to whether Anne really was confined due to mental illness, or whether there was another reason for this tragic ending to her life. According to one alternative account, the stranger had fallen in love with Anne and had asked Charles Tottenham for her hand in marriage, but was refused permission he was turned away from the house, leaving Anne heartbroken. But there is another twist in this story. During the restoration of Loftus Hall, the skeletal remains of a tiny infant were found between the walls in what is believed to have been the room Anne had been locked in. Did Anne fall pregnant with the stranger, casting shame upon her family? This could have provided a motive for her father to lock her away, never to be seen again. One local account suggests that Anne died during childbirth after her father refused to let anyone know of her pregnancy, including the local doctor, and she suffered complications leading to her death. Today, Anne Tottenham's grave is located in a local graveyard in Wexford. But something is very peculiar about it. Unlike the surrounding graves, it is completely cemented over the people that buried her clearly wanted to ensure no one could ever access her body. What dark secrets did Anne take with her to the grave? Metaphorically, Loftus Hall is indeed haunted by its dark and troubled history. One can almost feel the sadness and traumas that have taken place within its walls. But does the ghost of Anne still roam the cold and empty rooms of the mansion as it stands today? many are convinced the answer is yes. Indeed, American ghost hunters carried out detailed investigations of the house and claimed to have detected numerous anomalies. But it was in 2014 that Loftus Hall cemented its reputation as the most haunted house in Ireland when a visitor taking a tour believed that he captured a haunting image on his camera. It subsequently went viral, attracting the attention of people all around the world. 21-year-old Thomas Beavis said he was browsing through the photos on his camera when he noticed the ghostly figures of a young woman and an older woman in a window. In the early 20th century, the Loftus family went bankrupt, and following the death of the last member of the Loftus family, it was taken over by the Benedictines, who occupied it until 1935. In 1937, the Sisters of Providence converted it into a convent and school for young girls wanting to join the order. Locals say that people were terrified to attend Mass in its chapel, giving the well-circulated legends of the devil himself visiting the hall. In 1983, Loftus Hall was purchased by Michael Duvero, who opened it as Loftus Hall Hotel. Michael died in the hall and his wife struggled for several years trying to run the hotel on her own, until one night she took off without any explanation, leaving everything behind. Loftus Hall then entered another dark period. The property was left vacant but was occupied illicitly for nearly a decade by people conducting satanic rituals and meetings. In 2011, it was purchased by its current owners, the Quigley family who have embarked on an ambitious project of restoration. Today Loftus Hall is open to the public, who can join a 45-minute guided tour that showcases the history of the hall and its many legends. Leaving the hall after one of these tours, one is left with more questions than answers. Fact and fiction have become so closely entwined in the history of Loftus Hall that it is impossible to determine where history ends and the legend begins. Thanks for listening to this Dark Archives episode of Weird Darkness. If you like the show, please share it with someone you know who loves the paranormal or strange stories, true crime, monsters, or unsolved mysteries like you do. You can email me anytime with your questions or comments at darren at weirddarkness.com. Darren is D-A-R-R-E-N. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Minds, MeWe, and more, including the show's weirdos Facebook group, on the contact social page at weirddarkness.com. Also on the website, if you have a true paranormal or creepy tale to tell, click on Tell Your Story or call the Dark Line toll-free at one 877 277 5944. That's one 5944 All stories in Weird Darkness are purported to be true unless stated otherwise, and you can find source links or links to the authors in the show notes. Weird Darkness is a copyright and trademark of Marler House Productions. I'm Darren Marler. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. that you can either call or chat online with anytime 24-7. The folks at ifred.org are doing what they can with research and education on depression to give us the tools we need to fight against it in the days ahead. And if you feel a lack of hope in your life, take the 30-Day Global Hope Challenge. It's absolutely free. You can do it alone or with a friend or with a group. And after 30 days, you'll have a better understanding of how to build hope in your own life and in the life of others. You can find all of this on the Hope in the Darkness page at WeirdDarkness.com.